So today in our study of Acts, we come to a sobering story centered on the seriousness of sin. I think the best way to introduce our passage this morning to really help us not just to to grasp its significance, but really to feel its weight at 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 a gut check level is simply to recall what God has revealed about himself in his glorious word. The central theme of our worship has been on the holiness of God this morning. And if, if there is an, an all-encompassing descriptor of God, we would be hard-pressed to find a better word or concept to describe him than holy. We begin to, to grasp the significance of holiness when we realize God is perfectly pure in his moral perfections, and he is unlike and exalted far above any other being in the physical or in the spiritual realm. He is Lord over the whole earth, and he is Lord over the entire host of heaven. But as human, as human creatures, we, we feel that weight of God's holiness at a, at a, at a gut check level when, when there are moments when the curtain of heaven's throne room is, is pulled back even for a moment. The prophet Isaiah once peered into the holy of holies ever so briefly. As he looks in, Isaiah sees, sees these terrifying creatures with six wings. These creatures use their wings to cover their faces and their feet as, as they fly above God himself while he's seated on his throne, the train of his robe filling the temple. While they fly around the throne, these majestic creatures cry out continually, to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The very foundations of the thresholds of the heavenly temple shake shake with the force of their thunderous cries, according to Isaiah. As he beholds this scene, the only phrase this, this human prophet can muster is, Woe to me! I am condemned, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I am lost. Literally, I am disintegrating. In the unfiltered light of unblemished spiritual purity, Isaiah sees his own spiritual leprosy 
And his first thought in the presence of the king of glory is to cry out, unclean, unclean, unclean. When this king of glory descended upon Mount Sinai to visit his people, the people were given a three-day warning that he was coming. They had three days to to wash their garments and consecrate, that is, to make themselves ceremonially clean. Limits needed to be put in place around the base of the mountain of Sinai where God was to descend in case even accidentally a beast or a child or a man or a woman came too close to the mountain where God's presence would be manifest, lest they be utterly incinerated. When the holy presence of God came to rest upon the top of Sinai in smoke and fire with thunder and lightning and trumpet blasts, when Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God at the foot of the mountain, they rightly, they sanely trembled with fear. God's immediate presence is is wonderful and awful at the same time because in and through every aspect of his person and of his nature, he is utterly and he is unrelentingly holy. Such is the the character and the nature of the God whose spirit is imminently present in the scene from today's passage recorded in Acts 5. Our passage is Acts 5, 1 through 16, but I'll begin reading the last verse of chapter 4. That's Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it. And laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land 
for so much? And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Spirit, please lead us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we will see this truth on full display. Because the Holy Spirit is God. His active presence can be both lethal and life-giving. In verses 1 through 11, we'll look at the lethal nature of God's presence. And in verses 12 through 16, we'll look at the life-giving nature of His presence. The famed Presbyterian preacher, Donald Gray Barnhouse, he would, he would not allow his congregation to sing the third verse of the hymn at Calvary because it included these words. Now I have given to Jesus everything. His reasoning was that if God acted toward the people from his church, who were singing those words in the same manner as he did toward Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, their church would need a morgue down in the basement. And his point is well taken. We ought to be careful about saying things or singing songs that highlight what we have given to Jesus or how well we have served Him. Because no one has given everything to Jesus. 
But praise God, the gospel is not about what we have given to Jesus or how well we have served him. But the gospel is all about what Jesus has given to us and how well he has served the Father on our behalf. Now, the details of our text are not really that difficult to understand at all. What is spiritually challenging, however, is to think through the implications of what is happening in this scene. This incident with Ananias and Sapphira occurs in the, in the very early days of the church when it was forming and as it began flourishing. We might say that the church of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit who has come down at Pentecost, has, has therefore gone on the offensive. It's gone on the attack against the powers of darkness. And we see that in chapters 1 and 2 and 3 of Acts. But as John Stott has noted, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, we see Satan launching a counterattack against the church. And his, his attack comes in three forms. First, he brings the external threat of persecution from the Jewish religious leaders, which begins in chapter 4 and, and continues through even chapter 5. Second, in, in today's passage here in chapter 5, Satan's attack includes an internal threat to the church through moral subversion. That is, undercutting the mission of the church by unintentionally actually working against it. Exhibited by the spiritual deception of Ananias and Sapphira here in chapter 5. Peter acknowledges Satan's scheming in the midst of this in verse 3. Satan's third and, and more subtle attack involves the threat of ministry distraction in chapter 6. As the, the logistical challenges of a, of a growing church begin to mount, they threaten to stop preaching and praying because, frankly, ministry now is just so busy. But this is where our passage falls, in the middle of these satanic threats, no matter how fearful or how subtle they may appear to be, but how precious and how powerful do the words of Jesus become because he anticipated these threats. Therefore, he said, upon this rock, namely the proclamation of the gospel message that acknowledges Jesus is the Christ, upon this rock, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we saw in chapter four that, that God actually caused the persecution by the Jewish leaders, that is, the attempts to threaten and to silence the apostles and their proclamation about Jesus, he caused it to utterly backfire. Ironically, it was the religious leaders themselves who were silenced, speechless before the boldness of the apostles, noting that they had been with Jesus. 
In chapter 6, we'll see that the Spirit brings about a very reasonable solution to the threat of daily ministry distraction. Satan was attempting to silence the proclamation about Jesus by keeping the apostles so busy, they they simply didn't have time to to preach and to pray. But a clear and spirit-wrought perspective prevailed, and additional leaders were added to help with daily needs so that the apostolic proclamation about Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension would continue. Now, the solutions to these threats in chapters 4 and 6 are a cause for rejoicing. Because despite these attacks, the gospel is spreading. The proclamation is continuing. But but God dealt with the internal threat of moral subversion here in chapter 5 in such a severe way that it caused fear to rightly fall upon the church and to, and to anyone else who, who heard about what happened. Verse 11. A man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. The name Ananias in Hebrew means God is gracious. Does that surprise you? Does it surprise you that God exercised immediate and severe justice upon a man whose whose name means God is gracious? For the Hebrew, even repeating the story, using the name, And Ananias would remind them that though God is exceedingly gracious, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, it would remind them that he will by no means clear the guilty. Exodus 34, verse 6. So, what then is the nature of of the sin that Ananias conspired with his wife Sapphira to commit. This is important to know. It would be good for us to know what sin they committed so that we might not flirt with the same sin that spelled immediate and total disaster for them. Peter says, verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So is the sin of Ananias and Sapphira lying or greed? Peter continues in verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it, that is the land, did it not remain your own? 
and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why have you contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So notice several things here. First, despite the influence of Satan, whom Peter clearly acknowledges had a role here, verse 3, Yet Peter asks Ananias why you have contrived this deed in your heart. The guilt is for Ananias to fully own. And because the wages of sin is death, he instantly paid with his life for his sin. Second, note that Peter says, Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit in verse 3. And then in verse 4, he says that Ananias lied not to men, but to God. In other words, his sin was against God, the Holy Spirit, which is one of the clearest examples in all the scriptures that the Holy Spirit himself is in fact God. Also, Peter makes very clear that ultimately, Ananias has not sinned against against Peter or the others, though they did, but ultimately his sin was against God himself. Since Ananias laid the money at the feet of the apostles, this this is a very strong testimony that the amazing things that are happening in these verses are of God and not merely of men. When Ananias hears Peter's words, he falls down and dies. A similar scene plays out with with Ananias' wife in verses 7 through 10. Despite the opportunity to tell the truth, she had an opportunity to tell the truth. Peter asks her directly. And she says, yes. Why didn't she say no? One word. Why didn't she say no? Actually, that's not true. We lied. And I want to confess and repent that before you right now. But she said yes. That's the amount. And she too died instantly at the feet of the one where they laid the money. Because they agreed on the amount, it demonstrates that their spiritual deception was premeditated. So then, back to our question, what was the nature of their sin? What was the nature of their spiritual deception. Peter's questions to Ananias make it clear that the issue at hand was not ultimately greed. Ananias and Sapphira were not coerced to give. It was entirely voluntary. They could have just said, Peter, we sold some land and we wanted to bring a portion of those profits and donate them to the church. And Peter probably would have said, praise the Lord. And they probably would have been at church the next Sunday. So so the issue is not the amount that they gave. 
Rather, note that this story is set by Luke in direct contrast with what's told to us about Barnabas, the son of encouragement, as he was lovingly nicknamed by the apostles. And I'm sure that nickname was an encouragement to him. Could it be, though, that Ananias and Sapphira craved the acknowledgement and the affirmation and esteem given to Barnabas for donating all of the money he had made for selling his field? It appears that the sin, the spiritual deception of Ananias and Sapphira, was they, that they wanted it to appear to the people of the church and to the apostles that they, like Barnabas, had donated all the money from their sale to the church, but in reality, they'd only donated a portion. In other words, they wanted to appear more generous than they actually were. Here's the essence of it. They presented themselves as more spiritual than they actually were. But this is where this passage cuts uncomfortably close to home. God is so zealous for the purity of his beloved church that he instantly eliminated a man and a woman whose deception threatened the fidelity of his bride. He removed the threat. The story of Ananias and Sapphira rightly strikes fear in the hearts of those who hear it. And yet, which of us have not in some way, at some point, succumbed to the temptation to allow others to think of us more highly than we ought? And we lived. If that's true, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. Provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Romans eleven twenty two. The temptation to try to appear more spiritual than we actually are in reality. I'm not sure if there is a more regular temptation that faces the people of God on a daily basis. Young people and even our real little ones Do you feel tempted or do you sometimes feel conflict in your heart when your parents ask you to do something and maybe you obeyed in a way that you want mom and dad to think you obeyed? At least you tell them that. But maybe you didn't actually obey as fully as you made it seem like you obeyed. This passage says that that, that's a dangerous position to hold in your heart. 
it would be far better to be very honest with your parents and say, mm, yes, I obeyed, kind of, but also I didn't do everything that you asked. Please forgive me for that. And I, I, with God's help, I'll, I'll, I'll try to obey more fully in the future. That is a good response. But n- no matter what our age is, Wanting to sound more biblically minded or biblically saturated in our our thinking than we actually are, or to seem wiser than we actually are, to appear as, as a better husband or father than we actually are, to convey we are more devoted to prayer than we we actually are. To seem more organized than we actually are. To seem more together than we actually are in reality. Or to seem more tender and compassionate than we actually are. To seem to be a stronger leader than we actually are. To seem to be more generous than we actually are. To appear to be a more diligent worker than we actually are. To try to appear as a better friend or mentor or Bible teacher or discipler or or growth group leader or counselor or servant. To seem more humble or holy or kind or thoughtful or fearless or even funny or, or fervent. To appear to be less affected by some circumstances than we actually are, or to appear to be more affected by other circumstances than, than we actually are. The list of temptations could go on and on and on. In fact, this terrifying story about Ananias and Sapphira informs one of the things that we do in rock 101. We tell newer people all the time that as a church, we do some things pretty well. Uh, Other things we're not that good at. But we can promise you this at some point, as leaders, we will disappoint you at some level. That's just the truth. It won't be our intention. But it will happen. If you've taken Rock 101, you've probably heard that. But, but to be clear, the sin is not in being tempted to present ourselves as more spiritual than we actually are, but to actually say or do things designed to make us seem more spiritual or better in the eyes of others than we actually are. At its root, that's hypocrisy. It's not a sin for someone to think more highly of you than you deserve. But it is sinful to allow yourself to be perceived as more fill in the virtue than you actually are. If you know that what the person thinks is true is not fundamentally true, but you just choose not to correct them over that 
error because it leaves you looking better than you actually are. One of the things that's incredibly sobering to consider is that one of the points of this passage is that even if you can fool other people, children, even if your parents don't see you when you're sinning, if by keeping your sins secret or by allowing yourself to be, see, be perceived as better than you are, you fool everyone else. You cannot fool God because you cannot lie to the Holy Spirit. Every single one of your actions though they may be hidden from the sight of others, they are lived out in the plain sight of Almighty God before His very face. And He sees with with high-definition clarity. Since every one of us is, is guilty of spiritual deception at some level, the tension is building. Where can we turn to find hope and freedom when in this passage the Holy Spirit seems less like an advocate and more like an assassin. I mean, to be clear, it was perfectly just for God to require the life of Ananias and Sapphira for their sin and it would be perfectly just for God to require the same thing of us. So let's take a moment today to praise him for his patience and his perseverance and for his kindness. Or will you continue to presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Where right now? In your life, are you doing more presuming than repenting? God is both lethal and life-giving. The place to turn for for freedom and hope is is toward God in repentance through the life-giving spirit of his son. It's just like last week. It's not either or. It's both and. God's presence is lethal as it regards sin. And God's spirit is life-giving as it regards those who place their faith in Jesus. Listen to all the life happening in verses 12 through 16. 
Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And these signs and wonders are attestations. That is, they're verifications and validations and affirmations that this message is, in fact, true. They were all together in Solomon's portico. That's that porch area at the temple. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. To not appear more wise than I actually am in reality, I don't know what that means. It's not clear who Luke is referring to. I think the way the sentence is written, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. I think that probably is referring to those who are opposed to the gospel message. That contrast was made earlier by Luke. Despite the fact that the people hold the apostles in high regard, it's also possible this is other members of the church who are in awe of what God is doing through the apostles. Both are likely true. But listen to these words. More than ever, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That is, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them, even if that's superstitious. There's an acknowledgement that something is happening through these men. A work of God is happening. Their families and friends and loved ones are sick or dying, and they bring them into the presence of these men, hoping that this life-giving ministry will touch their friends and relatives and loved ones. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. So here we go. It's starting to spread Already, it's breaking forth outside of Jerusalem as it will over this next section of Acts. They're bringing in the sick, those who are afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This is the kingdom of God on earth. The life-giving ministry of Jesus. It's still occurring by the power and through the presence of the Spirit and the very hands of the apostles and the church. People were being given life and being healed in ways that had never been seen before until Jesus arrived. And his ministry, that ministry is continuing in his name. In this new life of God, there is, there is no place for spiritual de- deception. And yet we're all guilty of it. So, the right response is to confess to God the places where we have been spiritually deceptive And individually and together, let us commit to allowing the life-giving truth of God to reign in our hearts. Let us live in the light of truth with one another at church, with, with, with one another in growth groups, in Bible studies. Let's be honest with each other, and let's be exceedingly gracious to one another. 
as God has been to us. Because despite our sin, we're not dead. But in our own strength, this would be impossible. So, so we need to ask the Holy Spirit to serve as our helper. Jesus described him as, as an advocate, a spiritual advocate in John 14, 26. This advocate took out the threat to the church. Because he loves the church, but he hates sin. So let's let the Holy Spirit act as a spiritual assassin, but specifically against our sin, leading not to our death, but to the death of our sin, so that the life-giving Spirit might, might free us to live our new life in God by faith in Jesus. This is why he came. When Isaiah saw the glory of God, he, he began confessing his sin. And by the grace of God, a hot coal was taken from the altar and brought to touch Isaiah's lips. And the guilt, the guilt of his sin was atoned for in the instant. As we behold the glory of God's holiness, in this passage from the revelation of God's word, May we too also see our utter need to have our sin atoned for fully and completely by another. For those of you who do not know Christ, He is the only mediator between a holy God and you and your sin. No one else is coming. No one else can protect you. Jesus is both lethal and life-giving. So I'm I'm begging you to run to Jesus. Place your faith in him. For on the cross, lethal and life-giving came together. For Jesus, God's son, was executed in your place. Not for his own sin, but for yours. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would live. You would live forever. And this, this, this can be yours. If you come to Jesus, place your faith in Jesus, confess your sin to Jesus. And may the Holy Spirit breathe life into your dead soul. For those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, rejoice that Jesus already has set you free. Rejoice because in, in contrast to our, our spiritual deception of our substitute, Jesus, Peter said, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He bore himself, 
He himself bore our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter 2. The debt of our sin has been fully canceled by the cross. The merits of our great high priest have purchased, that is, they have bought our liberty. There is therefore now no condemnation, as in none, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not even against that one sin that's in the back of your mind that you're thinking, even this one? Is even this sin forgiven? Even if I'm mostly pure and righteous, won't I have a blemish before God? If that's true, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that you now own the pristine righteousness of Jesus Christ. It belongs to you and you are wrapped in his holiness and his purity. And you stand before the Father in the confidence of the righteous works of Jesus Christ on your behalf. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the sweet sound of utterly amazing grace. This is the good news that sets us free. This is the good news that keeps us secure. This is the good news that protects us from fear. Because this good news is about the lethal and life-giving God that we serve. Praise be to our glorious Father. Uh, Praise be to His unblemished, spotless Son. And praise be to the most holy and most powerful Spirit of God Himself. Would you pray with me? Spirit, we are in awe of you. We acknowledge that without you, we would have no hope in this world and we would have no hope in the world to come to ever stand in the presence of holy God. But I pray right now, as, as our voices begin to proclaim, as we burst forth in song, I pray at the very same time you would, you would use the truths that we're singing to penetrate our hearts at at a deeper level than has ever happened before in our own life. And I pray that the fruit of that would be humility, a desire to be truthful, an eagerness to repent of our sin, and awe at who you are. So lead us, Spirit, we ask, in the name of Jesus, our beloved King. Amen.